This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Well, it was almost 40 years ago when a doctor wrote a letter, this letter written to the New England Journal of Medicine, saying that there had been a study involving powerful pain drugs. And the good news out of the study was that opioids are not all that addictive. Well, there has been much analysis of that letter, and one of the people doing that analysis is David Jurlink, a drug safety researcher, also head of the pharmacology and toxicology department at the University of Toronto. And uh, David is joining me on the line now. Good morning to you. Morning, Jill. Uh, tell me a little bit about this letter, and, and it was written by a respected doctor at the time. Uh, what did that letter do? Well, the letter was entitled Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics, and it was published in early 1980. And it mostly escaped um, notice because it was only five sentences long. Um, But what happened was it was actually leveraged to great effect in the 1990s in particular by people who uh, thought we should be using drugs like morphine and oxycodone more aggressively to treat chronic pain. And it was leveraged in this way. You know, in 1990, if you wanted to, if you had chronic back pain or, you know, uh, osteoarthritis, went to your doctor, it'd be very unlikely that he or she would have put you on something like morphine. We were concerned about um, about causing uh, addiction or unmasking addiction in vulnerable people. Uh, what uh, this letter was used to do is to help convince doctors that that risk was something we didn't need to fear anymore. And so I think we, we bought that message, and that's had a lot to do with, uh, I think, how we have been prescribing opioids for the last 20 years. Uh, did anyone question the letter or the study, the, the, the data that was used to, to put the letter together? Well, um, so this study has been cited more than 600 times. And we, you know, we've known for a long time that it was a heavily cited study, even though it was only five sentences long. Um, a couple of people, journalists for the most part, have uh, noticed that the um, that the, the paper was leveraged in the way I described earlier. What we've done in this instance is actually pull every single citation to show not only the number of citations and how they sort of surged in the mid-90s after OxyContin was brought to market, uh, but we actually found that three-quarters of all of the citing articles effectively just parroted the main title. And this really went a long way, I think, to helping destigmatize opioids and, and helping convince doctors that it was safe to use the drug. And so how much do you think has this letter played a role in what we're dealing with as far as addiction and perhaps over-prescribing of these types of drugs? Well, there are many factors at play. I, I don't want to suggest it's the only factor. But if you accept that um, the mushrooming of our prescribing of opioids for the last 20 years has had a role to play, and if you, uh, which it has, and if you accept that um, that was largely the result of doctors being told that opioids were safe and effective, um, this was really a key uh, cog because it, it was a large part of the, the argument uh, behind the notion that opioids could be used safely. Um, the reason doctors didn't crit- sort of critically evaluate this letter was because it was buried in the back pages of a journal. You couldn't get it online until 2010. And it was published in one of the most prestigious journals in medicine. So if I'm a doctor in late 1990s and I'm attending an educational event and I hear an articulate, well-meaning pain doctor tell me that I, I, didn't, I didn't need to be so worried about opioids for my, for my patients with back pain and arthritis, um, and the New England Journal of Medicine said so, that, that was a very powerful message and I think one we wanted to hear. So it's not the only cause of all of this, but I think the, it had a, had a lot to do with the change in prescribing that we've seen. 
Uh, has the doctor who wrote the letter s- spoken about it or talked about it more recently? Yes. So he was contacted by the Associated Press um, a few days ago. And he, and he's also spoken with journalists, uh, a fellow named Sam Quinones in particular, who wrote a terrific book called Dreamland about the history of the epidemic. Uh, and he uh, is clearly aghast at how his letter has been manipulated and leveraged by people who thought it was, uh, you know, thought it was a, a powerful way to uh, help doctors not, uh, you know, not, not fear opioids. Does he feel then it was taken it was taken the wrong way, or people people yes. read too much uh, into it? Uh, Unequivocally, yes. I mean, it's not quite clear what he did in his study because, again, you can only say so much in 101 words. But he, uh, you know, but his conclusions pertain to patients who were started on opioids in hospital, um, and what we're and we're used to um, to destigmatize opioids for doctors who were putting people on opioids for months or years at a time. You can't generalize from one to the other. Uh, have things changed? I mean, here in BC, we've um, the College of, of Physicians and Surgeons uh, came out. It was several months ago. Came out with with stricter guidelines when it came to prescribing opioids. It actually led to a bit of confusion with the wording of the guidelines. Doctors were weren't one hundred percent sure uh, how they should be prescribing, especially with people with chronic pain. Uh, have we changed then, or have we learned uh, things that that make us better understand opioids and opioid use? Well, uh, I think doctors are starting to finally realize that opioids have a role to play in patients with chronic pain, but they're not, it's not the role that they've enjoyed for the past 20 years. You know, the, and, and doctors, I think, are, uh, doc, doc, doctors who are thoughtful about this are using them less often and escalating to high doses much less than we did, say, 10 years ago. Um, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in BC, uh, I, I understand, uh, suggested that the doctors locally should be observing the old CDC guideline that was published in 2016. Um, and there's new Canadian guideline just out a few weeks ago that I think is uh, very comparable in many ways. One of the concerns that has been, uh, arisen, especially in BC, is that doctors have effectively cut people off. They're, you know, sort of scared of being tapped on the shoulder by their provincial regulator uh, and have taken people from very high doses down to low doses or, or nothing overnight. That's a very dangerous thing to do because the, these people who, um, you know, uh, are physically dependent on their opioids, uh, you know, to be brought from 500 of morphine prescribed by your doctor down to 50 in the course of a week or two is a very dangerous thing to do because what these patients will do is they'll go into withdrawal and they'll get whatever they can get their hands on to not be in withdrawal. It's a miserable way to be. And, you know, with, especially with the profusion of fentanyl and related compounds on the black market, and especially in BC, it's, a, it's something that we are quite worried about. Um, and, and looking at the letter, too, or the doctor who, who described or explained it, uh, it, it does seem like a bit of, of a jump. When he, when he explains, he was only talking about people who were getting opioids in the hospital for a short period of time, which I think a lot of people can relate to, whether uh, you ha- you're having knee surgery cause you, or you broke your leg or your appendix is coming out and, and saying that those perhaps that group of people wasn't at risk then of leaving the hospital and becoming addicted. Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, he, he focuses on about 12,000 people in hospital uh, who get opioids. About four of them seem to suffer from addiction. It's not really clear whether it was only four or not, because, again, you can't really assess the detail of his work because there's not enough words in the manuscript. Um, but, yeah, you can't, you can't generalize that to a, you know, a 40-year-old guy with low back pain that's work-related who goes on opioids, often at very high doses for months or years at a time. Um, it, it, again, the... The um, it was the message. I think it was the title of this article and the place where it was published that really went a long way to help, helping doctors do uh, what we've been doing. And, and I, I think we we know better now.
and 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 still an issue. I remember covering a court case not too too long ago, and there was a man. It was his first court appearance for theft, and he talked about how just a year and a half earlier he'd been a construction worker. His life had been fine, and he fell at work. He was injured. He had a back injury, and then went down this spiral to the point he was addicted and and buying street drugs, doing that exact thing uh, that that people run the risk of. Have have we learned then, or we know now? We must know now that that there is this risk of addiction for people who one day might be fine and the next day find themselves down that road. Yes, and uh, you're, and I've seen that exact circumstance, or very similar circumstances, uh, countless times. People, you know, well-intentioned prescribing for acute or chronic pain, and then months or years down the road, the patient has uh, a full-blown addiction. Um, we don't know exactly why it is, why somebody who gets put on opioid therapy um, has these things, has addiction uh, as a consequence. There are some personal factors, you know, history of trauma as a child or history of mental illness or, you know, um, you know uh, history of alcohol use disorder, that sort of thing. But there's got to be some genetic factors here, too. And so the bottom line is you don't really know, you know, if, if I put somebody in opioids, and I, I'm, it's important to make the point that I still do use opioids for chronic pain, um, you're rolling the dice a little bit. And so uh, you know, the, I, I think we are learning that these drugs aren't as safe and aren't as effective as we have been taught by companies, frankly, that have built, that have, you know, made tens of billions of dollars from their sale. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, we're starting to learn, but it's, it's a long way back from where we are now. Do you think we will get to a better place where we, where we know more, we understand it more? Well, I think we eventually will. The question is, how long will it take us and how many people will be harmed along the way? You know, we know what needs to happen. We need to use opioids differently for chronic pain. Uh, you know, don't need to abandon their use, but we need to change how we prescribe them and prescribe them much less and at lower doses. But for people who already have addiction, they need a whole different set of interventions. They need safer drugs like methadone and suboxone, and they need places like Insight where they can, you know, use drugs safely and be resuscitated if they need to be, and they need access to all of the the care that comes along with um, it comes with you know proper management of addiction. Uh, these are things that will take time and they will take money, and some of them will be opposed. Right? Whether it's a community opposing a supervised consumption site or a, a, a pain organization that's bankrolled by pharma opposing measures to curtail opiate prescribing, um, it's not like tobacco where we can kind of all agree that uh, it's a bad thing. Uh, it is much more complicated than that. Oh, well, David, uh, I hope I said your name. Is it Jerlink? It's close enough. <laughs> well, David Jerlink, thank you so much uh, for your perspective and your point of view on this. Uh, extremely interesting. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980 CKNW.